This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Koi and goldfish have been staples in the hobby for a long time, originating in Asia, and continue to gain in popularity as staples for aquatic water gardens as well as indoor tank systems. The beautiful color and finish variations in both species have been developed over hundreds of years and now some lines and individual fish have tremendous economic and prestige value. My guest today is Joe Pollock, president of Blackwater Creek Koi Farms based in Eustis, Florida. Blackwater Creek Koi Farms is a top producer of quality koi here in the U.S. Joe's company is comprised of three farms located in central and northwest Florida and specializes in butterfly koi as well as standard koi and goldfish varieties. In addition, Joe produces a line of high-quality fish food. Joe also does double duty as president of the National Organization of Goldfish Growers in America and works closely with wholesalers, retailers, and hobbyists. Today, Joe will discuss koi and goldfish from breeding and growing to clubs and showing. We'll be right back with Joe Pollock after these messages. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Joe Pollock, president of Blackwater Creek Koi Farms. Hi, Joe. Thanks again for being with us today. Hi, Roy. Thank you for inviting us. Well, I definitely have a lot of questions for you. Uh, why don't we start with, I guess, talking about uh, how you got interested in koi and goldfish or in the hobby in general? Sure. Well, Koi and goldfish, I'd say, have been a part of my life ever since I built my mother a 100-gallon pond in the backyard back in the western part of New York, Corning, New York, to be exact, uh, around when I was 12 years old. Uh, uh, Needless to say, in New York State, uh, the weather is gloomy and cold most of the time, except for the summers. So I had a long chance to study some of the old water garden and pond-type catalogs that we would get and get some ideas and get some inspiration and then uh, during that summer, we decided to, to dig that pond and not knowing any different, build a, build a small concrete structure. And that kind of sparked our, our interest. A lot of uh, enjoyable days sitting by it, feeding the fish and, and growing some plants and so on. And so that, uh, I guess, was, was where we started. And uh, from there, as things went on, my interest grew to the point where we had tanks in the basement and then uh, a few ponds in the backyard and what 
from there it turned into a, a college degree in aquaculture. Uh, those few ponds ended up being 65 acres with um, 16 employees and millions of koi and goldfish being shipped around the world. So uh, that's kind of where it started and I guess where it's grown to as well. Well, so you had a you had a pretty complicated business plan when you were a child, apparently. <laughs> yeah, it was more of just a, a passion and something to do that uh, could keep me busy during those uh, those uh, colder parts of the year and and be able to take that outdoors with me uh, as well. So it was uh, definitely enjoyable. So why why koi? What do you think makes them so special? Well, you know, originally going to the pet store and seeing tropical fish and learning that these tropical fish were not saltwater sparked another interest. But from there, I learned, you know, a tetra is a tetra. They all look the same. Where with koi, uh, I guess almost like snowflakes or other comparisons that you might make, each one of them is different. And the patterns and the colors and, and the growth rate and the, the fact that they're so hardy all made them so, so intriguing i mean to to have fish that you know to say that this is the only fish like this exactly like this in the world is uh is pretty cool so in terms of keeping koi what what does it take to keep koi for for folks that aren't uh really aware of koi or maybe not aren't even really in the hobby yet well koi are nothing more than carp regular old river carp that uh, they try to keep out of the rivers up north and you see in different places uh, that's the good thing about them. They're very, very hardy. Uh, they grow very large, and they're resilient to, to most issues. Uh, they're, because of that hardy species, you can hold them in, in various tanks and, and ponds and so on, and they're not as touchy, whether it be uh, water quality or temperature and, and so on. They're a, they're a great species to work with because they they're, allow you to make a lot of mistakes <laughs> and still keep them alive. But you don't make any mistakes, though, right? Never, never. Okay, we've already, I, I already made all of them, and hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So, um, you mentioned ponds. Now, are are water garden ponds harder or easier than aquariums? You know, Roy, I, I think that they're they're easier in a way because ponds require cleaning typically twice a year, usually once in the spring and once in the fall, where you pump it out. You know, maybe clean out the bottom, any debris and stuff that are in there. And also because they're a larger uh, volume typically than a than a tank, uh, let's say let's say a, a starter aquarium might be 10 or 20 gallons, whereas a starter pond may be 100 to 1,000 gallons. And if we look at the fact that if you were to put a drop of chlorine in a 10-gallon tank, you might kill your fish, whereas a drop of chlorine in a in a, in a 100 to 1,000 gallon pond wouldn't uh, um, affect it at all. So. Uh, there's the ability for more stuff to build up and and uh, require a little less maintenance and, and gives you a little more of, of an insurance policy. So in, in my mind, I think they're a little easier to maintain. So in your view and, and over the years, you must have seen some pretty spectacular ponds. What Can you uh, maybe describe one or two of those for us? Well, I've seen ponds from uh, from that little 100-gallon uh, water garden to ponds of 50,000 gallons, 8 feet deep with sheer walls going straight down, built of concrete with very complex uh, filtration systems and so on uh, on there. And a lot of it depends on the level of the hobby that you're in and how far advanced you've, you've gone. But uh, I've seen ponds uh, go for as much as probably 400 to maybe $500,000 Actually, no. Uh, the, the the most I've seen was one million sixteen thousand dollars, and that was three intricate six thousand gallon ponds, all interconnected, 
to where the backup generator, uh, to give you an idea, was flown in by helicopter, thus to not disturb the uh, the, the grounds around the pond. And this was to uh, one-up one of his uh, business partners on the pond that they had. So it was a competitive thing, but it turned out to be spectacular. Uh, so I'd say the most I've seen is that, that million-dollar uh, pond. With some- wow. So which, which of your business partners were you trying to one-up? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. If you saw so, our ponds and how green they are, you would uh, think so. <laughs> You've got great ponds and, and obviously beautiful fish. How big do they get? I know um, I've seen different size koi, and I know some folks aren't really familiar with the sizes in these fish. Well, without uh, using my hands to show you, I would say uh, we usually say uh, an inch a month when the water temperature are above. 70 degrees. So a typical size, uh, adult size of a koi around 24 inches in as little as four years. However, I have seen some grow to over 40 inches, and those fish would probably be over 20 inches long, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, over 20 years old uh, to get to that 40 inches long. So, but in general, a couple of feet, two to two to three feet uh, over time. And a lot of that has to do with the amount of uh, water they're kept in, the amount of food they're fed and the amount of fresh water that seems to exchange in the pond. Uh, so it is possible with the right conditions to grow a very large koi in a fairly small pond. I would think that would probably be a pretty good consideration for folks who maybe don't realize they get that big when they're first stocking their ponds, right? Absolutely, absolutely. But that's the, the other thing to uh, maybe think about with, with koi. Uh, koi are an addiction, and it only takes one to get you hooked. So you, know, you go to the pet store or the pond store, and you buy that little... Uh, two to three inch fish for three or four dollars and you put them in the pond and you feed him and you grow him and he becomes uh, friendly and eats out of your hands and by the time he is of size that he's uh, getting a little crowded in that pond you're already thinking and plotting about how you're going to tear the addition off your house to build your pond <laughs> bigger and make it a little bit uh, better for that fish so uh, they do grow large and that's part of the attraction to it is to have this big pet that's almost like a dog in your backyard in an, you know, in an aquatic environment. What are some of the popular varieties? I know you raise a lot of different color and, and finish varieties of, of koi, as well as the goldfish, and we'll talk about the goldfish a little bit later, but in terms of the koi, what are some of those popular varieties? Well, probably the most popular uh, in terms of color would be red and white, uh, which is a kohaku, uh, or red, black, and white, which would be either a sanke or a showa. These are very vivid uh, fish with with uh, the the bright color that uh, are attracted to people, as well as some of the yellows and the metallics, the very bright shiny stuff, stuff that 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 shows up very very well, uh, seem to be the most popular. But I would say the number one uh, worldwide would probably be the kohaku, the white one with the red spots. Okay, is that one of the most popular items that you sell from your farms? Well, on a on a business side of it, uh, we look at selling a little bit of everything. Uh, that is, the pond owner doesn't want to come in and just buy Kohaku or Sanki. It's a big part of it, but they also want a blue, a soggy, or a yellow Yamabuki uh, to make their mix. So when they look in their pond, they have a little bit of everything. So we try to, to focus on having a good quality of a lot of different varieties, and that uh, makes the, the business side of it fairly tricky. It's, it's easy to produce lots of great Kohaku, but uh, you're only going to sell so many of one variety. Similar to if you went to the grocery store and you bought apples and they only had Red Delicious and that's all they ever had, you'd start looking for another grocery store that had different varieties to uh, to mix it up a little bit. 
So how did you learn Japanese? <laughs> how did you get familiar with all the names and, and um, you know, all, all the uh, intricacies well, of that? Honestly, totally, total immersion is probably the best uh, way to describe it. Uh, when I was working as a system designer for a for an aquatics company, I had the chance to meet some uh, some Japanese farmers here in the United States that were actually just coming through to go on a uh, a cruise out of uh, Port Canaveral, and they wanted to go around and see some some fish farms and, and some stuff. So we rented a vehicle. Uh, we toured around uh, the Tampa area, saw a couple of farms, went to the, actually to one of the large pet shows and got a chance to see the aquarium displays and stuff that were there. And uh, after that, they said, you know, if you ever get to, to Japan, please stop in and see us. You can stay at our home. We'd like to, you know, return the favor and show you around. Well, I just happened to go to Japan for an installation on some uh, zebrafish and hopped on a train, went to Mr. Suda's place. I spoke no Japanese. He spoke no English. Uh, <laughs> and then the second day I was there, I was in the ponds raking weeds and working alongside of uh, everybody else. So uh, if you want to eat, you better learn how to say that you're hungry. Uh, if you have to go to the bathroom, you need to learn that. And then uh, over time, you, you learn a lot of the, uh, the other uh, more fish-related lingo and stuff. And from there, it's developed into a, a great relationship that's ongoing and uh, really something that's helped uh, us advance our uh, our business and our uh, personal lives. How long were you there for? Uh, I was there off and on for a period of up to two weeks, uh, maybe seven or eight different times. Uh, okay. And in between there, they, they visit the farm here and stay uh, occasionally and tell us what we're doing wrong and uh, help us to, uh, to, to get better at the, at the craft. <laughs> that's great. So what about goldfish now? I know you, you also raise some varieties of goldfish. What are those varieties we, we raise the varieties that do the best i guess in the outdoor ponds including sarasa comets which are a red and white fish uh similar to a koi sometimes they're mistaken for them and in smaller ponds sometimes these goldfish are better as well as shibunkins which are typically blue with red and black speckles and we do a japanese waken or walk-in which is a double tail kind of a penguin fish they're an elongated body with a a wide flat uh, tail and they kind of waddle through the water, but uh, they're actually, actually pretty quick. So this is the three main varieties, and we've tried some of the more intricate lion heads and so on, but uh, they don't tend to, to survive uh, as well in our larger ponds due to the predators that we have uh, here in Florida. They're just not quick enough and more suited towards the, uh, the aquarium trade. Okay. So how much do koi and goldfish cost for someone that's considering starting a water garden pond or maybe even a, a tank? Well, uh, I think, uh, I guess I, I say think of koi like diamonds, and then think of a, a koi farm like a diamond mine. And I, I guess what I really want you to picture is a big pile of dirt. Uh, the few koi that uh, cost a lot of money that you typically hear about are those very few diamonds that are sifted from a lot of dirt. And I don't want to say that lower end uh, fish are dirt, <laughs> but... Uh, we have uh, to go through an awful lot of fish to get those few that are that are worth a, a lot of money. But uh, the typical koi costs between three and twenty dollars, and because uh, it takes cash flow to run a business, uh, a lot of very good fish go through at a very low price because there are so many of them, and we can only keep back so many. So uh, a starter hobbyist may pay somewhere between five and twenty dollars for a, 
a fish that has potential to evolve and develop into a, a very nice large specimen. Well, now, what's the most expensive koi you're, you know of? The most expensive I've ever heard of being sold was for $125,000, at least that I have uh, witnessed. Uh, I've heard of them going for over a million, but I actually witnessed one be sold for 125000 uh, which was probably over 30 inches long, a red, black, and white variety that had just placed very well at the All Japan uh, Koi Show. And typically these fish are in their prime. They're like the, a racehorse that's just won, and it's shined up and looks great, and it is ready for display or ready to be, be shown as that top, uh, top animal. Uh, so I'd say 125 is the most I've, I've seen. Sounds uh, like a beautiful fish. Now, you mentioned uh, the, the show there. I see all sorts of flyers, and I know there's a lot of hobbyist koi clubs. What can you tell us about some of these clubs? Well, you know, there's, there's the koi shows, and there's literally hundreds of koi clubs and events that happen every year. And the nice thing about that is that you, you go and visit with, with people, typically at, a, at one of their homes uh, around their koi pond, and talk about pond-related and, and koi-related issues with people that are both experienced and novices uh, in between. So you get a, a chance to really get exposure to a, a lot of different techniques and preferences and different ways of doing things. So these clubs are a, a great source of, of information, and they're free. You can go and attend as a non-member and, and see what it's about and, and find out if this hobby's for you and ask a lot of the questions that... Uh, other people have already experienced uh, and have the answers to. Okay, well, I definitely want to talk to you a little bit more about some of the intricacies of your business and breeding koi and other related topics. We'll uh, continue to talk koi and goldfish with you right after these messages from our sponsors. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio, and we're continuing our conversation with my guest Joe Pollock, president of Blackwater Creek Koi Farms. Hey, hey, Joe. So, a little more, I guess, about some of the intricacies of your business. Can you describe how you breed koi and, and maybe some of the other things involved for grout, etc.? Well, the joke is that you put a male and a female together, you dim the lights a little bit, you add a little red wine and some soothing music. And the next day, you've got all the koi you need to sell. And the red wine makes the red color, right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, the honest truth of it is, is that it is somewhat industrial. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize uh, is that these, these fish are spawned on a particular date, 
in order to hit a target size food, let's say, in the pond. So koi farming is very much like agriculture, uh, or it's just like a, like a terrestrial agriculture, let's say corn farming, where you would plow the fields and you would spray for the weeds so they don't come up, and then you would let the fields settle down a little bit, and then you'd go in there and you'd plant that seed, hoping that, one, the environmental conditions, such as the rain is coming and it's going to be warm enough for that seed to sprout and grow without any frost. Well, in a fish farming application specific to koi, we drain these ponds, we wash them out, we add lime, and we fill them back up and add some fertilizer. And what that does is that starts the process of these very small bugs growing. Well, after about seven days of this pond being full, we have an explosion of these tiny bugs that are just the right size for the fish to eat. So now we've got to time it that these fish uh, breed, they lay their eggs, these eggs hatch, and they get to a size where they can eat this explosion of bugs and grow very quickly. So we have a couple of day window. If we, if we spawn too early, then the bugs don't have a chance to, uh, to populate if we spawn too late the bugs in the pond are actually bigger than the fish and they eat the fish. So timing is everything. And we've gone to using a synthetic hormone actually to inject these fish so that we can say, okay, we want you to lay your eggs on on day three of pond filling. And they spawn and then by day seven or day eight these eggs have hatched and they're now baby fish eating those uh, bugs and growing as quickly as possible. So there's quite a bit of science and preparation uh, involved and we find that maybe 60% of the time we hit it right. Other times we have a cold snap, it's cloudy, uh, the fish don't want to spawn and we have to change the female. So there's quite a bit that goes into it just to get these babies out into the pond and, and growing. What are some of the sizes of your ponds in terms of length, width, and, and depth? Our ponds uh, are anywhere from around 5,000 gallons, which would be 15 by 20 by 3 foot deep to 1.25 acres, which is somewhere around 2 million gallons. And typically we use smaller ponds to grow the, the babies up until about an inch in size, and then we transfer them after sorting into the larger ponds uh, to grow out secondary. Uh, the trick of it is to grow a lot of small babies so that we can sort through those and get those few that are, that are actually uh, of the quality to grow to a larger size. So it takes a lot of different size ponds. And some ponds do a lot better than others just because of the soil type or past conditions in the pond. So how do you get that beautiful kohaku or sanke, you know, those, the lines you like? How easy is it for you to sort of predetermine what your spawns are going to look like? Well, that's, that's the part that is probably the, the most challenging and probably the part that, that, that uh, causes the most uh, troubles is that you have to produce a very, very large amount of dirt or of fish in order to sift through it to get those few diamonds. So if you want some very, very good kohaku, let's say, you know, this red and white fish, you want it to have three nice, distinct stepping stone spots down its back, you may need to produce 20 or 30,000 fish to find that one fish that has that exact pattern. Now, someone will have three steps, but the spot will be on its side or on its belly or two spots on the head and one way back by the tail, but not even. So uh, the, the gist of it is that you have to have an awful lot of fish to sort through to get those few that uh, are uh, of that quality that you're looking for. 
people might think that, okay, if you want to raise yellowfish, you put two yellowfish together and you get all the yellows that you want, where really uh, when you put two yellows together, you get all types of varieties out of it, depending on what the history of those parents were. So you have to just sort out those few yellow, uh, which is actually a higher percentage than, let's say, the red and white varieties, but still the percentage is low of a quality fish. So quantity and lots of pond space gives you quality and few fish to sell. So is that the same considerations when you're looking at breeding some of the goldfish varieties? Yes, goldfish uh, goldfish are, are, are unique because they've been bred for so long that uh, the goldfish breeders that we use, we use subsequent generations, uh, uh, every once in a while we'll get something odd. We'll have a fish that's eyes are looking up or it has a double tail when we spawn them from a single tail and some, some odd stuff. And of course we keep that out uh, to play with on some spawns and kind of to keep our interest in some of the odd stuff, but uh, in general, uh, there is a difference in the quality in goldfish, but uh, they produce a much higher uh, percentage of, of good sellable fish. Thus, if you look at the stores and you look at the prices, uh, goldfish prices are typically a lot lower than that of koi. Okay. So how long does it take to get, you know, just approximately from, I guess, the spawn to a size that you would be selling? Just a rough time frame. Uh, three to four months is where we would start selling them. Uh, we'd spawn them, we'd get them to an inch, we'd start culling them, selecting out the good ones. And then uh, uh, within that three to four month period, they will be three to four inches if all goes well. In terms of fish health now, there's been a lot of things occurring in the news in, in all sorts of different areas in, um, in fish health. What are some of the major concerns for you and also for koi hobbyists? Well, it used to be the major concerns were bacteria. You'd see a hole in a fish. Uh, typically, they'd call it aromonas or a hole disease. The fish gets a scratch. Uh, that scratch turns into a bacteria and eats a hole in their side. And that's still present, but now it seems to be the viral diseases are, are much more of a concern. Uh, we say that we can wash off just about anything off a fish, but you can't wash off a, a viral disease. If you've got it, you've got it. So... Uh, with that, the concern is quarantine. No matter where you buy your fish, no matter how long you've had the fish, uh, whether you've just taken them to a koi show for a couple days and brought them back, you should keep those fish in a separate tank with separate nets, completely isolated from the rest of your pond for at least a couple of weeks, preferably three weeks uh, at a temperature above 72 degrees Fahrenheit. And that will give you time to see if there's anything going on with that fish. Has it been exposed to anything? Uh, allow you a chance to treat those fish and not infect anything else that you might have in your pond. Okay, that's good advice, definitely. What are some of the biggest challenges you have? Well, the biggest challenges as far as uh, business, I would say, is the genetics. Um, And we've talked a little bit about the breeding aspect of it, and it's good and bad. Uh, Because it's so difficult to produce these fish, uh, uh, again, you just can't take two and throw them together and get good sellable fish, that keeps the market somewhat stable. There's a very high cost to produce a, a good quality fish, and that keeps it somewhat uh, profitable. Uh, if they were able to, let's say, clone a koi, then the market would collapse because they, you could pump out as many good-looking fish as, uh, as you, you might want. So I'd say the biggest challenge in general is the fish themselves. Yes, they're tough old carp and they grow like crazy, but to produce that higher-quality fish uh, takes careful record-keeping and years of trial and error until you get that pair that really does what you want them to do. That's an interesting comment. Now, do you know of anybody that is actually trying to clone koi? I've heard that it's been tried for years, and because of, I guess, the past uh, genetics and 
You know, for instance, uh, if we take these two, two yellow koi and put them together, we get all these different varieties, which means the grandparents or somewhere along the line had those varieties. So I don't know of anybody that has successfully done it in mass. Um, thank goodness. Let's, let's hope that it doesn't happen. <laughs> or that it's you first, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, I guess, so what are some of the best parts of your job or the business in, from your viewpoint? From my uh, point of view, I think that the best part of this business and the job in general is meeting great people from all over the world. Um, the koi hobby and the koi business attracts very interesting and talented people from, from all walks of life. Uh, it opens the doors uh, from people from the islands and from from Europe and just uh, everybody seems to have this this general interest in these these fish and uh, you learn a lot about people's uh, backgrounds and, and differences so I'd say that's that's probably the best part uh, not really uh, dealing with the fish itself it's really uh, meeting the people that it, that it attracts what's the difference between imported koi and, and uh, I guess domestic koi in uh, both in terms of the terminology I guess as well as in your own thoughts well uh, the, the word domestic had a kind of dirty connotation to it for a long time because uh, of the fact that there was not a lot of quality fish in the United States, and those domestic fish were typically orange fish with black speckles and just really didn't have the, the color or the quality that, uh, that the, the public demanded. So domestic uh, was, was those raised in the United States. And now, uh, because of the... the amount of quality fish uh, in the United States, they're being bred here uh, from those genetics. So it's kind of like uh, if an Asian child, let's say a couple from Japan, flies to the United States and the wife is pregnant and she has a child here in the United States. Now, is that child domestic or is that child imported or is that child still Japanese? Well, the genetics are still there. So, of course, uh, that child is Japanese, uh, just raised here in the United States. So... The, the line between imported and domestic fish uh, is not cut and dry like it used to be. And really, you just have to compare the quality quality and price and, and say, you know, is this fish uh, a, a good deal for the price that we're, we're asking for? And so uh, domestic is kind of, kind of going away uh, somewhat, and we're starting to see more and more of a surge in, in people buying American fish. What is the one thing you think every prospective koi hobby should know above everything, if you had to think of one thing? Well, uh, Roy, I think the one thing is that it only takes one experience to become addicted. We, we talked about that uh, uh, a little in the past, but uh, these fish open so many doors and, and allow you to enjoy your backyard and, and keep these fish year-round and for long periods of time and to develop uh, a relationship almost with them uh, where they will allow you to hand-feed them and, and each has a, its own personality. So. It uh, becomes addicting, and it's it's really a hobby to uh, to enjoy with the whole family. So, speaking of addicting, then what, what's your favorite fish? If you had to pick one, or maybe I'll give you two. Well, I I think probably the the most favorite variety would have to be kumanru. And if you've looked in any koi magazines or books, you'll know that this is a black and white fish that changes all the time, depending on the water temperature depending on the hardness and, and various factors. And because of that, it's a very unstable fish. This is a fish that looks like a, an orca whale at times. It has no scales, and the black and white pattern tends to shift uh, year after year. So it's, it's one of those you can chase and, and look at the same fish 
uh, each year and it, and it looks different. So that'd probably be my, my most favorite. And my second most favorite would be uh, probably one of the brighter metallic varieties, such as uh, Yamato Nishiki, which actually translates to Japanese koi. doesn't have anything really to do with colors, uh, which is a very, very brilliant white fish with red and black uh, spots that tends to shimmer. And it's typically a scaleless variety. So those two are, are ones that we always try to put a, a, a breeding together each year just to to do something out of general interest to ourselves, regardless of whether we're going to sell those or try to profit from those. Have you been pretty successful with those two? Well, it's been hit and miss. Uh, we had a kumanru that I bought in Japan as a two-year-old that was plain white. It was... Uh, kind of a milk jug color, very ugly. And the people I was with uh, when I bought this fish for quite a high dollar were snickering. They're like, boy, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Look, he's buying that plain white ugly fish. And after two years of being here in this hard Florida water, uh, the pattern developed into this phenomenal uh, black and white pattern. And we bred that fish for the first time with a, with a couple of other males. And it produced the best kumaru offspring I think I've ever seen. And they sold very well. And maybe that's where the addiction to that uh, variety started. However, the, the following winter, uh, we had some holes in our fence here, and it was very dry around it. So the otters came in and, uh, and cleaned out our pond and, of course, got that female. So uh, since then, we're trying to get that genetics back and, and using some of her offspring and still trying to, to chase that, uh, that perfection down again. I think uh, in the next year or two, spawns will, will have it. So, yes, we've been successful, but it hasn't been without heartache. Yeah, that definitely is a heartache to see your female disappear, I'm sure. So uh, in terms of uh, new trends and I guess maybe long-term trends in in the industry, what do you see? What do you foresee? Well, currently, uh, business is tough. You know, we sell a specialty item that's considered luxury. Not everybody needs a very high-end fish in their backyard right now. They need to to pay their bills. Uh, Expenses continue to rise, and and because it's agriculture, it's not a a huge, huge profit-type business. But... uh, what we might not make directly financially, we make up in, in quality of life. And we have to remember that, that, you know, we're working on a farm where we walk from our house down to the pond, and it's a business that we absolutely love. So as far as long-term trends, you're seeing some farms uh, still do well by producing a variety of fish, whereas others that are importers that are kind of the middlemen, you're starting to see that get cut out a little bit more, I think, because... The Internet uh, opens doors and allows you to source those fish back, so they don't trade hands quite as often. Um, I don't foresee koi prices ever dropping. Because of the genetic issues and the cost of production is high, uh, it, it's kind of self-limiting that uh, you can only sell it for so little money and still make a profit at it. And, of course, we all have to make profits to, to pay our bills. So I see it uh, somewhat stable and continuing to grow. Maybe not the the rocket ship ride that it was four or five years ago, but people are staying home and they want to enjoy their ponds. And, you know, instead of taking that long uh, vacation, maybe they buy a couple fish or they add on to their pond or put a new pump on there or, you know, stay home and enjoy things. So I see it continuing to grow, maybe a little slower pace, uh, a lot of momentum in the American market due to regulations and more education to the customer. So uh, we're looking forward to the next few years. Well, it's definitely a, a beautiful 
group of fish, a uh, very relaxing hobby. And uh, unfortunately, we're out of time or I'd ask you uh, quite a few more questions. Did you have any final words or information that would be useful for the listeners? Or did you want to talk about your company? I think we're going to have your website links available online. So Okay, sure. You can find us online, but really uh, just check it out. Go on the internet. There's a lot of information. Go visit a koi club and start with a small pond start with an aquarium see what it's like and uh and enjoy it it's it's truly something that uh will bring a lot of joy to your life as it has us well thank you very much joe i really appreciate your time and also would like to thank our producers for making this show possible uh including of course mark winter i encourage everyone to visit my aquarium mania blog on pet life radio also if you have any questions comments or ideas for a show please feel free to email me at roy at PetLifeRadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa. Definitely one of my favorite aquariums. So until next time, visit your local aquarium stores and keep your tanks and fish healthy. And we'll see you then. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.